Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. My friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you, and uh, so pleased to be with you. We've got a, quite a day today in our second hour. Michael Mann is going to drop by, in our, uh, the, you know, the, the world-famous climate scientist who's being uh, pursued and beaten and harassed by right-wing billionaires across the planet. And in our third hour, Scott Carter, the, ex- the executive producer of the Bill Maher Show, uh, HBO's uh, Real Time with Bill Maher, will be here. And he's, he's a playwright, and he's done some amazing work that we're going to be talking about and involving you in the conversation. That'll be our third hour. I want to open this first hour, though, talking about the tax bill and the train crash or derailment, as it were. The, and in fact, let me start with, with the train, just, just to, to get this out. We... This train derailment yesterday was completely unnecessary. Back a decade ago, in fact, it was it was more than a decade ago, uh, Congress put into place this thing called positive train control. About half of all trains in the United States have it. About a third of all passenger trains in the United States have it. And basically, you know how you're if you buy a 2000 whatever. Actually, I just I I rented a Prius at the at the airport the day before yesterday Um, and. And it's amazing. If I go out of my lane, a little light flashes and it goes beep, 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 beep. Right. I mean, you know, this technology is not like insanely sophisticated or hugely expensive. It's in pretty much every car being sold right now. And yet and, and, you know, and we developed this for trains where, you know, every now and all along the train tracks, there are these little transponders, these transmitters that say, okay. You're going this fast. Here's the speed limit. And by the way, you know, if the train is going 80 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour speed zone, it actually slows down the train. The conductor has no say in the matter. You know, the train is a smart train. Nothing wrong with that. It's on tracks. It's not like, you know, a a driverless car. And we, we started fixing this. We started doing something about this. And then the train companies came along, the ones who own all the track, right? The ones who refuse to upgrade their track. The reason why Amtrak takes forever to get from D.C. To, to Boston via New York or just, you know, to New York. The reason it takes forever is because it's going on old track that is owned by rail, freight rail companies. And they don't, they don't care that the track is, you know, if or, if or it's capable of carrying high-speed passenger rail. It's not, it's not even an issue for them. 
other than the fees that they get from Amtrak for use of the track. So we put into place this positive train control thing that would actually prevent these kind of accidents. And then the, the train companies came to Congress and said, oh, we can't afford to do this. It's going to cost a couple hundred thousand dollars a train. We can't. And so Congress said, okay, you got until 2018. It was supposed to be in place in 2015, two years ago, nationwide. We, we, you know, we saw this movie before. We saw this movie back in the late 1970s when every country in the world was moving to harden the airplane co cockpit doors and the United States said, eh, nah, because the airlines said we don't want to do it. There was actually legislation proposed. Might have been in the 80s, but it was back during that era when, you know, right after all that spate of hijackings to Cuba and whatnot. Let's harden our cockpit, door, cockpit doors. I mean, you know, El Al was the founder of this technology, essentially, but it moved to all of the airlines in Europe. It, you know, pretty much anybody who flew to Israel figured it out really early on, but by the 80s, it was, it was ubiquitous, except in the United States. Why? Because a hardened cockpit door is another 100 grand on an airplane, and the airlines didn't want to pay for it. And, that, and thus, we got 9-11. So it's like, and these, by the way, are regulations. And here you've got Donald Trump saying, I'm going to cut the regulations. We're going to do away with the regulations. We're going to, you know, look at this giant pile of regulations since 1960. We're going to do away with them. Well, we've developed a lot of toxic chemicals since 1960. We've developed a lot of toxic technology since 1960. Regulations, by and large, are consumer protections, and they ain't happening. So anyhow, on, on that, I think it's a good thing that the media is starting to talk about this, you know, positive train control. But Okay, back to the tax the tax scam, the Republican tax scam. This, this is running full tilt boogie ahead. Last week, Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Says, uh, two of the world's top economists, issued, actually it was five, five economists, they were the two most high profile. They released this incredible report, it's called the World Inequality Report. And in this, they say the richest 1% of Americans held 39% of the nation's wealth in 2016. Now in the abstract, you know, 1% owning about 40% of everything seems kind of unfair uh, or whatever word you want to apply to it. But, but, you know, what does that mean in context? What was it in 1980? What was it when Ronald Reagan came into office and began reversing this process? If you look at the health and, and wealth of the American working class, the American middle class, from the 1930s, or really from the 1940s, you want to take the depression out of the equation, from the end of World War II until 1980, people making less than, in today's money, $100,000 a year, making less than $100,000 a year in today's money, saw their income grow at the fastest rate in the history of the United States. Now, in large part, that was because we were at the highest level of unionization in the history of the United States. Dwight Eisenhower ran for re-election in 1956, bragging about the fact that over a million new people had been added to unions. This was a Republican thing as well as a Democratic thing back then. Everybody agreed, hey, you know, helping the middle class is a good thing. Building America, good thing. But what they noted is the average annual income for the bottom 50% of Americans, half of us, has stayed over the last four decades since Reagan became president at $16,000 per adult inflation adjusted. Now, you hear about household income. Household income is up. Well, yeah, because now you've got two and three, and in some cases, four people in a household working. And it's been several years since I've seen government statistics that actually quoted individual income numbers. And the reason why is because they haven't changed since 1980. In, some, in, in many areas, they've gone down. Many parts of the country, they've gone down. While household income has gone up because more people are working. 
And then if you look at the top 1,300 households, 0.001% of Americans, the top 1,300 households, their income since 1980 has gone up 636%. And so what are the Republicans doing with their tax, tax policy? They're saying, hey, let's increase the income for that top 100th of 1%. Is this fair? Is this reasonable? Is this, you know, 60% of Americans think that this tax bill is a scam. In fact, here's the exact numbers. 55% of Americans explicitly oppose the Republican tax bill versus 33% who support them. This is from a graphic over at the top of democraticunderground.com. 66% of Americans believe that the tax bill is principally going to benefit the, the very, very wealthy and not the middle class. And they're right, by the way. A new study by the Tax Policy Center finds that next year, nearly two-thirds of the benefits over 60%, nearly two-thirds of the benefits of this tax bill are going to go to the richest 20% of Americans. 84, by 2027, 84% of all the benefits to this ta- from this tax bill are going to go to the top of 1% of Americans. The vote is going to be this afternoon. They have not yet voted on it. Blue state Republicans, MSNBC is reporting right now, blue state Republicans say uh, that would be like the California 14. I mentioned flipthe14.com, I think is the website, about... The 14 Republicans who are elected in California, hey, you know, let's replace these guys. What, what, what do we have? You know, people who want to who have this kind of tax policy, this kind of social engineering. Really? So your thoughts on the best way to stop the tax bill. What is the best way to stop this tax bill? Is it a matter of simply calling your elected representatives, which you can do right now? Or is, is there something else? I mean, you know, talking about it, obviously, publicizing it. Trying to, trying to fight back the, 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 the BS coming out of Fox News and right-wing hate radio. I mean, what are, what are the best alternatives? What, have you had any conversations recently with any of your friends about this tax bill? What are you hearing from people? How's it selling in your neck of the woods? And then I got to tell you about the Bridgeport Bank. We'll be back with that in a minute. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We'll be back with more of the news of the day, your calls, and my take on all of the above right after this. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Michael Mann is on the line with us. Dr. Michael Mann, the uh, distinguished professor of meteorology, the director of the Earth Systems Science Center at Penn State University, the author of several books, including The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. His website, Michael Mann, with two N's at the end, uh, .net. And uh, on Skype, you can tweet him at M-E-M-A-N-N-0-0. Uh, Dr. Mann, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks, Tom. Good to be with you. It's been a while since we've talked. I'm, I'm curious, yes. broadly speaking, what's your assessment of the current state of our knowledge of our climate and the challenges that we face in that context, number one? And number two, in the context of your telling the world about that, I'm curious what's happening with the various uh, right-wing trolls and corporations and whatnot that have been, uh, shall we say, hounding you? Yeah, so I, I don't think we've spoken since the election. And, of course, there's a lot of water under the bridge, uh, metaphorically speaking. Um, we wrote this book, The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is uh, Threatening uh, the Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. That was written uh, several months before the election. And, and obviously it now feels prescient because we are certainly 
back in the, the madhouse um, of climate change denialism with a president who is a climate change denier, um, who is appointed to uh, key cabinet level posts, um, fellow climate change deniers, uh, Koch brothers, uh, uh, spokespeople, uh, lobbyists, fossil fuel industry lobbyists and apologists. Um, and as we know, uh, in less than a year, uh, Trump and those he's appointed to the EPA and other government um, uh, uh, level cabinet level positions have done everything they can to dismantle the environmental protections of the past five cent uh, five decades. Uh, environmental protections that were passed by both Republican and Democratic uh, administrations, and of course he's done everything he can to undo the progress that was made on climate change under the last administration, the Obama administration, which includes withdrawing from the. Uh, Paris Accord, um, uh, basically dismantling the, the Clean Power Plan um, and uh, using the EPA, uh, now uh, run by Scott Pruitt, um, who's a close, uh, closely tied to the Koch brothers, um, using, uh, now using the EPA to dismantle, again, everything that the EPA has done um, in several decades, uh, both on the environment um, in general and on climate change specifically. Uh, you may have also read recently in the headlines that the EPA is actually hiring outside PR firms to badger uh, climate scientists to yeah. badger. Uh, One was actually a, a Republican. One was an, a Republican opposition research firm. These are the companies that you hire if you want to know the dirt on Rick Santorum kind of thing. And they're applying yeah. that skill set to the employees at the EPA. That's right. The employees uh, uh, at, at the EPA and also um, folks like Bill McKibben, people who are trying to raise awareness about climate change. And even some of my fellow scientists, Catherine Hayhoe, um, uh, who is a climate scientist from uh, Texas, um, who has been subject to Freedom of Information Act requests, um, intended to badger her, intended to try to find something embarrassing to discredit her with. Uh, so, you know, obviously, you know, as we've discussed before, um, these sorts of tactics have been deployed against climate scientists in the past. Uh, they have been deployed against me individually. And, and I tell that story in my book, The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars. Uh, again, um, you know, it, it feels prophetic given what we're now seeing. Uh, in some sense, uh, the, the bad faith attacks on climate science have now metastasized to infect our entire body politic. Um, and that's what we're seeing in the age of Trump. Uh, we're seeing the same sorts of tactics that those of us um, you know, working on, on, on climate uh, science, the same tactics we were dealing with years you know, before are now being deployed uh, again to discredit the media, to discredit uh, the, the FBI, to discredit any impartial arbiters who are attempting to hold the current administration accountable. Yeah. The 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 attacks on you have been particularly uh, uh, awful, in my opinion. Um, how are how are you holding up? How are you fighting back? What's what, what what's where are you at right now with all this? Yeah, well, frankly, you know, the, the eye of Sauron has sort of um, moved elsewhere. Um, uh -huh. I had my time uh, directly um, in the crosshairs in the eye of Sauron, um, and, and I've detailed my experiences, as I said, uh, you know, in, in the books that I've written. Right. Um, you know, uh, me individually, um, uh, I have not been subject to um, as uh, many attacks and, and, uh, and efforts to discredit me and intimidate me as I had in the past, because 
the, the same forces that had their sights set on me um, have decided to, uh, to to aim more broadly. Well, also, you try you've, to go after you fight back scientists. Yeah. Yeah. You fight back. I mean, this is one this is one of the things I so admire about you, Dr. Michael Mann, is that you fought back when these people came after you. What what kind, we have about three minutes left. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on what the biggest challenges and risks are that we face and what we as a society should be doing about it and what we as individuals can be doing about it. That's a great question. Um, in, in the broad sense, of course, we're seeing an attack on science and reason, um, an effort to discredit, once again, um, honest brokers um, who are simply advocating for a fact-based discourse. And that applies to our politics writ large now in the era of Trump, but it certainly continues to apply to efforts to act on climate change, where the U.S. has gone from a leader under the previous administration to a follower. We're literally now the only country in the world that has not signed on to the Paris Accord, or to be more specific, that had signed on and is now uh, on the outside looking in because uh, Trump has withdrawn from that accord. We stand alone in the world. Even Syria uh, got on board um, uh, a couple, uh, more than a month ago, uh, leaving us, again, the sole, you know, nation in the world that has not signed on to this international uh, agreement to act on climate change. We've got to get past that. Um, Obviously, right now, we have an administration that is acting in bad faith when it comes to the issue of climate change. We've got a Congress that's run by Republicans who are in the, you know, you know, who are in the hip pocket of fossil fuel interests and the Koch brothers and have no interest in acting on this problem. The good news is in less than a year, we have a midterm election and we can decide to elect politicians who are willing to move forward on this issue and do, you know, uh, not the bidding of uh, these fossil fuel interests, but represent our interests in acting on this existential uh, existential problem um, that is impacting us now in very obvious ways. If you're following the wildfires out west, the superstorms we're dealing in the east, the, the impacts of climate change are no longer subtle. They're impacting us negatively now. It'll get much worse if we don't act. We need politicians who will act. Right. Do you in last minute here, Michael, do you think that, you know, like when the tobacco industry got taken down, basically all that sturm and drang about whether tobacco causes cancer just kind of went away. Is this entirely the fossil fuel industry or is this larger than that? Well, it's larger than that, that in the sense that it's the same sort of right wing interests, the Koch brothers and other conservative funders. Um, who are against all manners of government regulation, and that includes regulating carbon emissions. So it applies to climate change, but it applies to everything else. And in fact, they've used the same playbook that was used in tobacco, that was used in ozone depletion and any number of other uh, past um, sort of uh, you know, issues where the, the, the findings of science and the interests of the people have collided with powerful special interests, the profits of powerful special interests. So there's in, this entire infrastructure that exists in the form of uh, think tanks and right-wing front groups to promote their message. Um, to They've got this echo chamber that includes, of course, the television networks, uh, right. networks like Fox News, the editorial pages of the yeah. Wall Street Journal. Dr. Mann, so we're, they are able we're, we're out of time. Megaphone for- Hang on just a second. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Dr. Michael Mann, his website, michaelmann.net, his newest book, The Madhouse Effect. You can tweet him at M-E-M-A-N-N-0-0. Dr. Mann, thank you. Okay, thank you. When was the last time you looked forward to sitting at your desk all day? Since getting my new X chair, not only am I enjoying the time spent in my desk much more than ever, 
but I can't believe how much more productive I'm being. My X-Chair is unbelievably stylish, and thanks to all the ways that you can personalize it, it literally molds itself to my body. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. And because I don't need to keep having to take breaks or to stretch my back, I'm getting more done in a day than ever before. If you spend a lot of time in your office chair every day, then you need to try the X-Chair. In fact, here's a terrific deal just for my listeners. The makers of X-Chair want you to feel the X-Chair difference for yourself. So if you go to xchairtom.com, that's the letter X, chair, T-H-O-M.com, not only will they knock $100 off the price, but they'll even throw in a free footrest if you use the promo code TOM. Just go to xchairtom.com now. I love my X chair, and you will too. So check out xchairtom. That's xchairtom.com. Check out xchairtom.com, and be sure to use T-H-O-M as the promo code for your $100 discount. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you, and I'm super pleased to have in the studio with me Scott Carter, the Emmy-nominated executive producer of HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, a playwright, his uh, most recent play, The Gospel, according to Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Leo Tolstoy, Discord, you'll recall, a couple of weeks ago, I I was talking about this at some length on this program because I went to New York to be there for for one of the performances, and, and Scott and I uh, had a conversation about it on stage. It's basically, well, I shouldn't be telling you the story. Scott should. Scott, welcome well, and, to the program. And also, you had seen it in Washington before yes. that. Yes. So you've seen two different casts. Um, <clears throat> this all comes out of, just for some context, This all I'm, I grew up as someone who was not interested in religion, or I was indifferent or even hostile to it. And then I've been a lifelong asthmatic and had a near-death experience in 1987. And I was in the hospital for a week, and coming out of it, I had this kind of epiphany, this bliss experience that lasted for about a week, after which I was completely convinced of a God, which I have not doubted since that moment. This is in June of 1987. Oh. But I had no clear, I, I had no definite religion to return to, so I just kind of opened myself up to everything. So for the last 30 years, I have, anytime somebody wants to, for me to read something, I will try to read it. I have gone to so many different ceremonies. I, um, for two years in New York, I had a Jehovah's Witness come to my apartment every Wednesday afternoon at one o'clock. He would talk to me for an hour. I'd give him a glass of water. He'd talk to me for an hour. And at the end of the hour, I would say, once again, I believe nothing that you believe, and I will see you next week. <laughs> and, um, it. and, and, and it's just been this way of, of, um, exploring things to find out what I agree or disagree with. Mm-hmm. And over a period of time, I, uh, my sense of, Religion has deepened, and my, my respect for those with um, deep convictions uh, is, 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 is very high, and my, but also my, um, my feeling about those who I perceive to be hypocrites, has, that's gotten more severe. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's worked on both sides that's, of the scale. The play uh, comes out of this period of time where I, where I found out for the first time through this, this show that Bill Moyers did— on PBS called World of Ideas, that Thomas Jefferson had created his own Bible over three nights while in the White House. He gets done with the day's activity, and at nights, he and Meriwether Lewis and a couple other people are living in the White House by themselves. And um, he takes the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He has two identical Bibles because he's going to need both sides of the page. And he takes a razor, and he cuts out all all the verses that he likes, leaves all the ones that he doesn't, and then fashions out of a blank notebook, he pastes the verses he likes in, in a original narrative, and so he forms his own Bible. And I thought this was a tremendously exciting idea, and perhaps there might be a play in it. 
And then later I found out that Charles Dickens had also written his own gospel. His was written for his children. And then Leo Tolstoy had developed his own gospel as a way of staving off suicide uh, because he had become, <clears throat> after, pardon me, after his success as a novelist with War and Peace and Anna Karenina, he saw them, he saw fiction to be worthless. He saw all of his riches having no meaning whatsoever. And um, he went out in his fields and started working with his peasants. And so he realized that the peasants never thought about suicide. They thought suicide was the greatest sin that anybody could commit. And so he thought, if I could just have the faith of my peasants, I would be saved from suicide. So he started going to their chapel, but he hated it because the catechism, the Russian catechism and the way the Russian Orthodox Church was, origin was organized in those days, made it just a tool of the state. So for the next two years, he studies, he already knows Latin. For the next two years, he studies Greek so he can go back to the original scriptures. And then he writes his own gospels also. So my play has these three distinguished people in a limbo or bardo, to use George Saunders' word, a bardo-like setting where each of them thinks their path to salvation depends upon convincing the other two that their theology is inferior. It's a remarkable play. It so, really is. And the, the, the question for the hour, and, and Scott is with us for the hours, and, and uh, Arthur is opening the phone lines. Uh, number <laughs> one, uh, what is, how, it, how it has the role of religion changed since the founding of the country? And, and what I would encourage people, if they, if they want to call and discuss this with Scott and, and me, uh, you know, what, what, do you see religion as a benign force, as, as a positive force, as a negative force, um, through the arc of history and at this moment, how religion is being used? And let me put that question to you first. Well, I would say one of the, one of the main things that's different between now and Jefferson's time, Jefferson after his letter to the Danbury priests and getting into trouble for the, uh, the, the phrase that, is, that now a lot of people think is in the Constitution or the Declaration, but it's not the uh, wall of separation between church and state, he was able to avoid publicly talking about religion for the rest of his life, and he lives another quarter century. He's able to run for office in 1800 and run for re-election in 1804 and really avoid the topic. And he, he became even more, and, and you, uh, we have bonded because you are such a Jefferson fan, and I feel like you know at least as much as I do, if not much more, so that if I stray from, from accuracy, you will be the first to correct me. Um, but I feel like he then became even more jealously guarding of his private religious beliefs, sharing them only with John Adams at one point, with Benjamin Rush, with, with a few other people who he could completely trust not to leak his views to the public because he thought that his views as, as essentially a deist, someone who did not believe in the miracles of Jesus, though he regarded him to be the supreme philosopher, that the populace at large would find it difficult to vote for him if they knew his true ideas. Right. And, 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 and the, the famous, I think it was to Ben Rush, the, the letter where he, he talked about, you know, I've sworn, uh, you know, eternal, eternal hostility. hostility. Yeah. Yes. And, it, and it turns out he was talking about the churches. And at the end of the letter, he says, you know, please, please keep this discreet. Please don't share this with, you know, the genus irritable vatum. You know, right. they're, 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 the stand is all too interesting. I guess. Yeah. And he and he and during the election of 1800, his enemies used the charges that he was a heretic mm -hmm. uh, against him and priests actually from the pulpits. Uh told their parishioners that he would confiscate all Bibles would he, uh, if he were to be elected. Um, one of the things that people often don't know is the um, number of established religions in the different colonies. Uh, 
during Jefferson's time. So let's say in Connecticut, you might be p- paying taxes uh, to the Congregationalist Church, whether or not you were a Congregationalist or a Catholic or a Jew or a Muslim or, or an atheist. And uh, it was the Anglican Church in Virginia. Very often, the, all the different colonies, many of them, had official religions. And very often, if you didn't belong to the official religion, you couldn't run for office. Uh, and, and this is big in Massachusetts. Huge. I mean, this, this, they almost so, didn't become a state because of this. Right. And so Jefferson and Madison overturning that in Virginia, which is one of the uh, three achievements on Jefferson's gravestone, the uh, revised statute for religious freedom in the state of yeah. Virginia. He was so proud of that because then it set a precedent by which other colonies overturned their established churches. So, of course, he was the enemy right. of all priests and, 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 and clergy throughout the, the young country because they saw him as an enemy to their power. Yeah. Um, we have about 20 seconds before we're going to hit a break. I just wanted to toss one more topic in here that we can discuss. We have an hour, you and I, Scott, and, and, and our callers. Um, do you think Al Franken should resign? I think that I, I was very happy with the way that he first took the charge and said, let's go to the ethics committee. And he set up a due process yes. that I think uh, should have been allowed to play out. And I, and I think some senators now are going on record as having regrets for having this rush to judgment. I know you've got a, a, a time coming, a break coming up, but I, I think that that should have played out. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating topic. And you, you work in Hollywood, you know a lot of these players, you know, I'd like to get it. A little more conversation with you about this, okay. too. Scott Carter, Scott Carter is with us, the Emmy-nominated executive producer of HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, and a playwright in his own uh, accord of brilliant work. This is the Tom Hartman Program. His most recent play, The Gospel According to Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Leo Tolstoy, Discord, as you might expect. We'll be right back. And welcome back. And uh, you want to take some phone calls here? I would love Scott. To. Okay, Johnny in Lamarck, Texas. Hey, Johnny, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Hey, Scott. By the way, I do not believe that uh, 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 any Democratic politician should should resign right now in light of the scare tactics that are being put forth by the far right. It's their opportunity to get by one us and get more political power. My question for your guest is. When I drive north on I-45 towards Houston, and I pass this mega-sized church with a 30-foot-tall cross and a parking lot full of late-year model, expensive-looking automobiles, the hairs on the back of my neck go up, as opposed to when I drive by a small, humble wood frame, white wood frame church populated by black folk, I feel totally relaxed. I'd like them to reconcile that for me, please. I completely understand that. Thank you. And, uh, and and I and I think that one of the one of the issues that's discussed in the play, and it particularly comes from the viewpoint of Jefferson and Tolstoy, is the, is the, is the charting of how over a period of time religions have become more interested in consolidating power for themselves uh, over um, comforting the people who come to the church or or teaching or following the teachings of Jesus. Uh, it's interesting now that uh, how how loyal the evangelicals uh, evangelicals have been to Trump, and he seems to be this person who is popular with them, not because he embodies any teachings of Jesus or even is is familiar with them, but because he's defending them as a tribe, and that seems to be all that they care about. Yeah, 
To what extent do you think that that tribal identity within the, the megachurches and the, the I, I don't know quite the phrase for it, the conservative Christian community maybe, um, uh, to what extent do you, do you think that that relationship is largely exploitive? And if so, in which direction is the exploitation? I, I think it's highly exploitive. I think that, that for may, way too many people, uh, the, the name of Christ has become a, a, a brand, a, a cudgel by which to beat your enemies. That it's, that it's something by which I can claim to be superior or claim to have a, a, a divine backing of whatever my political ideas are, but I don't think that's Jesus. It's, it's, it's interesting to me that, that Jesus, who was so universal in his approach, who put up so few barriers to uh, approaching him, um, that, that he would now be seen as a, a figure who is, who is, whose name is largely put out there to exclude others. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I, when I was a late teenager, I was in New York City, and I went into uh, St. Pat- Patrick's, the big cathedral. On, on Fifth, yeah, on Fifth, on Fifth Avenue. Avenue. And there was a mass going on. And I'd never been in a Catholic church in my life at that point. And people were going up to take, take the wafer, take communion, which I had done growing up in the Methodist church. And so I thought, what the heck? And I got in line, and I got up to the front of the line, and the guy took, looked at me, and I didn't do the right thing, obviously. And he said, you're not Catholic, are you? And I said, no. And he says, I can't give this to you. And... I, I literally burst into tears. I mean, you know, it doesn't happen to me often. I wasn't like sobbing out loud, but I mean, tears were coming down my face. As I turned around and walked out of that church, I just, it was devastating. I, I, I've had the same experience at weddings of my friends and relations in Catholic churches where communion was being served at the end of the ceremony and I was being excluded. Amazing, amazing. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Scott Carter, the uh, Emmy-nominated executive producer of HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, the author, the playwright of The Gospel, according to Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Leo Tolstoy, Discord. I've never written a play. Playwrights always refer to themselves as playwrights as opposed to authors. I've never had to encounter that. I, 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 think, I think playwright is so specific. And also there is, there is something, there is an additional pride that one feels, and you've written 35 books, 25 I believe, are still in print, and you should be very proud of all that. But there is additional pride that I feel when I say playwright, and, it's, and I've been published, and this play that we're talking about now has been done in 18 different cities, um, that somehow it's been, it's been validated by audiences over the last four years, and that that is something that I feel warrants my specifically describing myself as a playwright. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're very good at it. It's 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 a remarkable play. Uh, the the uh, we were talking briefly about Hollywood, and you know I, I asked about Al Franken. Um, more broadly, the the uh, I read a piece this morning in I'm I'm trying to remember where I read it. It was one of the progressive news sites, and it was about how in the 1930s that there was a PR firm uh, that represented stars and starlets. And sometimes they would uh, uh, put on the photographs of women that they were offering to studios as talent. I think it was the letters DRR, which means directors something respected, directors choice respect. Basically what it means is this woman will sleep with you if you give her the part. And thus the whole casting couch, you know, thing that, you know, I think probably everybody has heard of the casting couch. 
most people thought it was like an anachronism, some ancient thing. Obviously, in the, with the Harvey Weinstein stories, it, it did not go away. Um, what's, it, what's it like in Hollywood right now around this kind of stuff? I, I think in the same way that you were talking last hour about going to your phone and seeing new, some new alert that, that Trump has incrementally moved us towards war or he's done something dumb, uh, there's a sense for me of an alert mentioning someone who I know who I had no reason to suspect anything um, other than being completely decent to men and women and w workers and non-workers. And to see them now uh, being called into question, some of them I know better than others. So, for instance, Al Franken is someone who I've known since 1993. He was often on Politically Incorrect. He's often been on Real Time. He was actually a, a correspondent for Politically Correct during the election year 1996, along with Arianna Huffington and Chris Rock. So he's someone who I know tremendously well. I've observed him in many different circumstances. So when I first read about these allegations about Al, it was very easy for me to put myself into his shoes and see how the due process is playing out and feeling like I would feel trapped by that uh, if, if it were me, that I'm there's a rush to judgment that's occurring. And... Um, and so I looked at it differently than, let's say, I do with Harvey Weinstein, who I've never met. Um, and some of these people, I'd, I'd heard about them, some of the people, and then other people, a complete surprise. Garrison Keillor, a complete surprise to me. Well, it's also very controversial, you know, whether he should have even been bounced out of, I mean, I, we're on the air in a fairly large radio station in Minneapolis, and there, there, there's a lot of concern that NPR has not treated him well in this regard, or frankly, the woman who is who is accusing him. Well, it's, it's also uh, interesting because when a name comes up now, what I find myself doing, because this is now becoming something that we're all developing a personal sense of expectation for, right. because it's, it's occurring so often, that I think, all right, two days from now, how many more will come, will come forward? Right. So for instance, with Harvey Weinstein, once one or two or three come forward, now there are 60. I think was the last report. Yeah, it's like the Bill Cosby thing. It's like Bill Cosby. That, and, and in fact, or Donald that, Trump for that. Or matter. Donald Trump. That, I mean, Bill has said that on, our, on, on real time that, that when it's one or two people, you can maybe doubt the um, veracity, maybe doubt the motive. Uh, but when it gets to be dozens and dozens and dozens, and there is a pattern to the account hmm. uh, that, they are, that, 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 that different women are telling, then you, then you have an additional sense of, well, I think there's got to be something there. I'm not aware of any additional Garrison Keillor accusers. No, neither am I. And, and he's disputing the one, I mean, you know, but I, it, it's not for us to litigate this stuff. I, you know, but it is being litigated in the court of public opinion. And I guess that's the water that you and I both swim in. Yes. You know, so and, maybe and, it is to us to litigate. Well, I would also say I'm the father of two daughters. I would say that my, I have been chastened in my daily life, and even I'm additionally aware in our office of how I treat my, uh, the, the, the co-workers, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I have a heightened sense of whether or not something might be inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And I feel like what's coming out of that is I'm going to be a better person. I, I, I think I've always tried to be a conscientious person and uh, a conscientious to everybody that I, that I deal with, because I think that character is how you are to people who you don't think necessarily can help you. Right. So that's waiters and waitresses. It's store clerks. I, I, I think that one should treat everyone equally. But I'm aware of, I'm also aware because I have a daughter who's 17 and one is 22, 
I'm aware of what kind of a guy I was at 17 and 22 and my attitude towards women. Oh, yeah. And well, I think any of us who yes. are, you know, of a certain age. Yeah. And I'm so hoping that young guys aren't looking to my daughters the way the way that I sometimes look towards girls. I, I think there's a generational shift, a, a consequential one. I mean, I, we, we saw this in a big way uh, with the millennial generation around issues of race and, and gender equality. And 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 you know, uh, gender identity, but I think we're we're also seeing this now in regard to how, as a society, as a culture, uh, we define the roles of men and women separately. I think that's completely true about race. I think it's true. and it goes to other things. The way a generation can make a shift, they shift it on seatbelts. They shift it on smoking. There there are just other ways. I mean, my I mean my father. His attitude was, I will never wear a seatbelt because if God wants me to go, I, I should go. I had an uncle who used to say that. And, and, you know, tragically, a lot of people die. Anyway, we'll be back with Scott Carter. Stick around. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. We'll be back with your calls for Scott Carter right after this. Actually, I wanted to. Oh, welcome back. Hey, we're on the air, and I'm in mid-sentence. We're talking with Scott Car- Carter, the Emmy-nominated executive producer of HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, playwright of the gospel, according to Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Leo Tolstoy, Discord. We talked about Jefferson. I wanted to get your thoughts on Dickens and perhaps Tolstoy real quick, and then we'll pick up, and, and then we've got every single line is full. People want to talk to you, Scott. Well, well it's Christmas, and so Christmas Carol, I, I see it at least once on stage. In fact, the fellow who played Dickens in the L.A. productions of my play in 2014, does a one-man show of, of, of Christmas Carol, which I see every year. People think that Scrooge was some complete whole-cloth invention by Dickens, that he was figuring out, well, what would the most evil person in the world be like, and I can have him be transformed by the end and become uh, a, a, a loving, Christmas-embracing person. No, Dickens is referring to topical political movements at the time. So there was this fellow named Thomas Robert Malthus, and his political philosophy was this notion of utilitarianism, that in other words, if you weren't able to work and earn your keep, you did not deserve food, you did not deserve to be on the earth. So when Scrooge, in the very first scene, when the people come in asking for a charitable contribution from Scrooge, and he says nothing, and they think he's meaning that it's anonymous, and no, no, he means he wants to give nothing— and he asks about, are there, are, are there no more workhouses? Let these people die and decrease the surplus population. That was a line of political thought. This fellow Malthus, when the potato famine came in Ireland, he thought, you're interfering with God's plan if we were to try to send food or aid to Ireland. Better that they die. Wow. Population control. This Population is, somebody, control. Somebody called right. earlier about this. And, uh, okay, uh, let's pick up some phone calls here. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, you're on the air with Scott Carter. Hi, Tom and uh, Scott. Thank you. Um, hey, Paul. A couple of observations here, uh, two, that I want to bring together. I was uh, on another program uh, uh, it's, uh, on WCBT called uh, State of Belief. Uh, the Reverend Welton Gaddy was talking about a survey that, uh, I guess, a big conglomeration of churches have done, and the, two, the results were this. Two things. The number one, that young, this is of young people, and what do they think of Christianity in the United, in, in the United States? The two, the two things were, one, that Christianity is, they per, is perceived as being more about what it's against. And number two, Christianity is perceived by young people as being 
a political brand rather than a doctrine of faith. Now, I want to tie that together with, of course, during the Roy Moore fiasco in that election, I heard people on the right saying, well, the fake news and the media is hostile to conservative Christians. And the first, it struck me right in the face that people who call themselves conservative Christians literally are putting their politics before their faith. Hmm. Why does the word Christian need to be modified by the word conservative? Isn't being Christian good enough? Good question. Paul, Paul I, I, I think that's, I, I think that uh, I'm completely with you uh, on these two points, and I, and I, and I, and I, yeah, I'm completely agreeing. There's actually a line that Tolstoy has in my play. In other words, if, if millennials, if young people are turning off, it's funny because you say conservative Christian, and young people are turning off both conservatives and, and Christians. Um, they have only themselves to, these, the people who run the churches have themselves to blame if, they, if, they're, if the message of Christ isn't getting out, um, and, and so people are turning off to, to whatever they're, they're giving. Tolstoy had a, there's a line in the, in the play that, where Tolstoy says, religion um, is now like a, uh, a cow whose teats no longer produce milk for her calves. That, that churches have stopped teaching the lessons of Jesus. It, it, it's so true. Ken, in Nashville, Tennessee, you are on the air with Scott Carter. Yay, good afternoon, Scott. Um, there's something that you said that I've heard other people say that I think is probably inaccurate. Uh, it's about Thomas Jefferson. Uh, I've heard this quote twice, that he, he made up a Bible of uh, uh, things he liked from the Bible, quotes he liked from the Bible. Actually, from my understanding, and his own term for it was diamonds in a dunghill, is that he used what were supposed to be the direct quotes of Jesus, and that's pretty much all he put in there. Um, and uh, now we could argue whether those were things Jesus actually said. Uh, that's kind of another discussion, though. I, I don't think we would have a disagreement that I that in other words the verses that he approved of were the ones of of the doctrines of Jesus that he thought were true. So he's getting rid of the miracles. And he's getting rid of verses that he thinks were added later by monks as they were copying the the Bibles in the pre Gutenberg days. Um, so I I it, it, forgive me if I inelegantly phrased uh, my description of, of of Jefferson's task. And actually, he did it twice. He did first a smaller version in the White House, and then later, when he had retired to Monticello, did a larger version. That's the one we know of today: uh, Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and that's the one that always gets reprinted. Um, but but it's, it's, it is pretty much along the lines of, of what you are saying. You are correct. Terry in Rochester, Washington. Terry, you're on the air with Scott Carter. Yeah, Scott, I had a two-part part question. Number one was, do you think people need to go through the type of near-death experience you had, or is that experience going to come to everybody? And number two... As do you think it can be reached through the intellect? Because our old saying was, uh, people are more afraid of uh, damnation or salvation than they are damnation, because they would actually have to go through that some kind of trauma or some type of type of uh, uh, saying something new. I don't know how you would put it. Well, I, I would, I would. Thank you, Terry. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, and and going to the first comment about do you have to have a near death experience? There are obviously people who have not had to go through what I did in order to wake up to an entire area of, of inquiry that I had been uh, oblivious to before that. Um, 
But I think there is something that happens when people have a downturn in their business, when they have a down, when they have a downturn in health, when they have a loss. Very often, we're able to uh, be asleep in a, in a waking sleep state through our lives, and then some event comes, and it happens all the time in uh, dramatic literature, where uh, an event occurs to the protagonist by which he has to reconsider. He or she have to reconsider um, things that they've taken for granted, or maybe have to consider things that they have not considered previously. Uh, so anything that kind of jolts you out of complacency, it doesn't have to be a near-death experience. And um, and then the second question I didn't quite understand. I I, I was attending to other things. I'm sorry. And <laughs> but I, but I think it was about uh, can can salvation uh, be reached through through faith? Oh, through the intellect. Actually, I made a note through about the that. intellect. Yeah, yeah. I made that was a note the word I didn't the, hear. The, well, certainly that. I mean, Jefferson was in, was was it was all through the intellect for Jefferson. And uh, and that's in my play. He very much contrasts with Tolstoy, who actually wants to get out. I mean, he goes barefooted most of the time. He goes out and he works with his peasants in the field, and he's and he's getting his hands dirty, and he's got a scythe, and he's um, trying to to do things all the time. I, I think that it's interesting in the, in the run that that Tom came to in New York. There was a Hindu wom- woman who made the comment that in the Hindu religion there are three paths to enlightenment which are all considered equally valid. One is intellect through, toward, through scholarship. One can learn and know and grow. One is through faith, and the other is through deeds. And in a way, my, my play has each of those three viewpoints represented. Jefferson is intellect, and Dickens is, um, is, is more faith. He, he's the most dogmatic of the three. And then Tolstoy is not—he's he's the— He's the one who dresses up as a peasant, stands at the gate to his estate, and berates people as they go by for them to repent. Tolstoy? Yeah. He yes. actually did that. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, and Tolstoy, he's funny because he, you know, he taught himself how to read Greek, but he often was a bad student. So, for instance, he mistranslated one verse to think that it meant that Jesus was telling everyone they have to make their own shoes. So he hires a cobbler to come and show him shoemaking. And then he finally gets his own pair of shoes, and he's going to walk to the Optima Monastery, this place where he used to go and argue with the monks. But by the time he gets there, his shoes are so poorly made, his feet are bleeding. And they have to send back to his estate for one of his coaches. He was always embarrassed that he was, his, was a titled family. What, you know, a, a, a coach with his family crest on it to take him back home. Wow. Amazing. These, uh, you know, Tolstoy, Dickens, and Jefferson, uh, you couldn't have found three more colorful characters. And very often people will say to me, why'd you choose them? And, and no, they chose me because these three people were the first three people I found out who did the exact same thing. Rewrite the four books of the Gospels. There you go. We'll be back with Scott Carter in just a moment. Hey, everybody's talking about superfoods, those nutritionally dense foods that are especially beneficial to your health. Did you know that one of the most powerful superfoods you can put into your body is beets? They're loaded with an important nutrient that increases your blood flow, which increases your energy. But who wants to eat a pile of beets every day? Not me. But now you can get the energy benefits of beets in a powerful, concentrated superfood drink, Super Beets. Only Super Beets is made from beets grown to exacting standards, then concentrated into superfood crystals. Super Beets promotes the body's own natural ability to produce healthier circulation for increased energy and stamina all day long. So if you want the benefits of a powerful superfood, call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com. 
With your first order, get another 30-day supply of Superbeats for free, plus indicator strips to see how Superbeats is working for you, and free shipping. So call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com today. That's 800-568-9889, tomsbeats.com on the interwebs. And welcome back. Elizabeth in Farmington, Michigan. You are on the air with Scott Carter. Elizabeth, what's on your mind? Hi. Thanks for taking my call, Tom. Um, I wondered if Mr. Carter had ever heard of a book called The Journal of Albion Moonlight, written by Kenneth Patchen. It contains a quote um, that I thought might be relevant to the discussion. He asked, uh, the question is not, do, do we believe in God, but rather, does God believe in us? And the answer is, only an unbelieving public could have created our image of God, and only a false God could accept it. I was interested in hearing your comments on that. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I very much embrace the, the sentiment that you um, read, and I, but I was not familiar with it previously. So thank you, yeah. Elizabeth, for increasing the range of my knowledge. It's remarkable stuff. Noelle in Riverside, California. Hey, Noelle, uh, what's on your mind today? Merry Christmas, everybody. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to uh, say a word about Bill Maher. He's one of my top favorite guys. I, and I enjoy watching the old politically incorrect shows. And he actually has said on uh, some of them, I believe in God. And I don't know what happened to him over the years, but now I cringe whenever he makes fun of, you know, God or Jesus. I still... I still enjoy him and appreciate his um, backing of the, you know, middle class. And uh, and also, if there is a supreme being and there there is, according to any computer analytics or anything, and Mount Ararat does have Noah's Ark on it, it's proven, there are books about it, that God is not a God of confusion. Jesus was born in this world. Anybody who just accepts that he was perfect, he did good, and he died for anyone who would accept him, you know, God will accept, and it's, you know, it, God is not a God of confusion, so yeah. I just wanted to put that out there. That, and, well, that, very, very well said. We, we just have a little more than a minute until we're going to hit a break, so let's get Scott's response to what you had to say, Noel. Thank you. Well, th- thank you for watching, both real-time and politically correct before it, and Noel, you will be interested that in the next year, in fact, I just uh, came here from, to, to Portland from L.A. where we were working on, we're going to do a one-hour special at some point of the year, I think it's going to be in June, of um, looking back on the last 25 years of those two shows. And so we've been looking back at these old clips and um, all these, di- and we have a, a lot of people who've done interviews giving praise uh, about the show, people who've been on the show a lot, Michael Moore and and uh, uh, Billy Crystal and uh, Seth MacFarlane and a lot of other people, Sarah Silverman. Anyway, so look for that. We come back on on January 19th. Thank you for, for watching. And, w- and what I would say is, it's a tribute to Bill that he is willing to have on, on a regular basis, people who completely disagree with him, whether it's Cornell West or whether it's Andrew Sullivan or whether it's any uh, uh, of, of uh, different uh, priest or, or uh, a pastor who we have on. He does not mind being challenged. And I think that's a, that's, a, that's a tribute to him as a host. There are a lot of hosts who only want people who agree with them. Um, and um, so anyway, so thank you for watching. That makes for a terribly boring program. <laughs> if you, if you right. only have people on who agree with you. I mean, it's just, and, and, and you guys do anything but a terribly boring program. You've, you've got a brilliant, brilliant host, a brilliant producer, and, a, uh, and, and, and a brilliant topics. We'll be back with more of Scott Carter 
taking your calls right after this. Welcome back. Ten minutes before the hour. And Roger in Petaluma, California, you are on the air with Scott Carter, our guest. Go for it, Roger. Hi, how you doing? Thank you very much for having me. Hey, Roger. Uh, just in short, um, I would like to discuss um, a, a modern idea of what faith is and something I think that all of the, uh, 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 the elder statesmen of our country have have subscribed to at least in their own in their own way before they try to put it in, in human words. And I think that faith and spirit. I don't call myself religious. I call myself spiritual. I have a healthy faith in creation and a divine being behind that. While I don't try to define it as heavily as I think has been done historically, the most important attribute that I take away from that is that we individually can have an interactive relationship with our experience in that our doings are reflected by our happenings. And therefore, I think that it can be made a lot more simple. Um, I get these ideas from some of the greatest teachers in my life who have been women. And I'm a gymnastics gym owner uh, who came from a broken home who was, you know, on his own at 15 years old. So there's no reason on paper I should even be where I'm at. But the thing that, the reason I bring that up is because the greatest observation that I can make inside of gymnastics learning is that women process it faster. And I think that that's always been demonstrated uh, throughout history. And the sooner we allow women to move our progress forward, uh, I think the sooner we'll get healthier understandings, modern understandings of that interactive relationship. Um, I absolutely believe in prayer, and I believe that it's those attributes that have excelled my life to be where it is. And I just wanted to know your comments on that, Scott. Thank you, well, Roger. Roger, thank you very much. And what I would what I would say is that I know a lot of people who are spiritual without having any official religious affiliation. And I think that this time that we, that we are living in right now, where there is so much emphasis on materialism, I think there's going to be a backlash to that, because at the end of the day, life is a mystery. And at the end of the day, we can't all be billionaires, but we can all begin to find meaning in our lives and ask ourselves the, the, the big questions. And, and so I think that, that the kind of comment you're expressing I think more people are going to be going in that direction in the coming years. Lemetric, if I'm saying your name correctly, in Rancho Cucamonga, California, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, my name is Lemetric, and yes, I'm calling from California, and I'd like to talk about the sexual harassment atmosphere. I'd like to get your comments, because I'm not happy with the results of Al Franklin, and I want us to sort of push away at this time from politics. Um, I don't want to look at the fact that, you know, Democrat, Republican, it doesn't really matter. But most people like righteousness. They like the right thing to be done. And when it comes to Al Franklin and the sexual harassment charges, um, allegations, rather, I'm very concerned. Today, um, one of the reasons why I'm concerned is because I believe he was thrown under the bus. I want to know from you guys, what was the, how did they measure whether or not um, stepping down is the right thing to do. I look, is, was there a scale, zero to ten, ten being the worst, ten meaning that he obviously did things that the president claimed he would do, grope women and, you know, private parts and all that other stuff, or McLear and, um, and Al Rogers, Roger Ailes, all that stuff. And then there's the five and under range where... Um, he may have done something that bothers somebody, 
and they didn't like it, at which point he should, they should have told him and he should have apologized, which he did. But if, do you realize that what's considered sexual harassment today was not sexual harassment 10 years ago or even five years ago? Yeah, I'm a woman, and I care about all people, men, women, whatnot. But I want us to get to the point of righteousness. I remember the woman who claimed that he kissed her. Do you know he asked her if he can kiss her because he was a comedian? He wrote in the script a, a kiss. He says, in the script is a kiss. And so can we practice? And guess what she said? She said, okay. So when you agree to something, I don't see that as sexual harassment. Okay. She said, okay. Lemetric, we're, we're running out of time. We're what running out of time here, if I, if I may interrupt you. Let's get Scott's thoughts on this. I, I think you've, you've laid out your position very, very uh, thoroughly and, and, and well done. Lemetric. Yeah, and I, and I would agree with a lot of what you said, Lemetric. And what I would say is we're kind of in a new area. We're kind of in terra incognita for how to be handling what the due process is. Um, I mean, we've seen... We've seen Historically, through history, often women be treated in an abominable way, and we also see women not be heard. Uh, and there's now a sense of trying to to correct, completely correct that. Um, I think in the case of Al, I think there there was a rush to judgment, and I think that he was pushed out. I think that's true, but I think that it's but it, I think it's coming from a place of people trying to find what the right response is to something that has long been ignored. Well, and this, the problem is that we haven't, we haven't kind of standardized our response. I mean, we, we did this a long time ago. We, we all agreed that stealing is wrong. But we treat bank robbers very differently than we do shoplifters. Why is there not right. a, a you know, public sexual activity equivalent of Which that? I know a lot of, of, of uh, women who disagree with Kristen Gillibrand saying we shouldn't be distinguishing between sexual harassment and uh, sexual assault. I, I think that we should be making those kinds of distinctions. And I think you're completely right, Tom, about um, some of these things we haven't figured out yet. We also haven't figured out, with the case of a bank robber, even with a bank robber, if they go to prison and serve their time, we considered their debt to society paid, and they come back into, into society. We haven't yet figured out the process for people who are being taken off the air or taken away from their jobs, if there's going to be a time when they may return. Yeah, and that's going to be a real challenge. Uh, Scott Carter, Emmy-nominated executive producer of HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. Is there a website or Twitter handle that you want to plug? Uh, JDT Project lets you know where my play is going to be done next. There you go. Okay. Uh, Scott Carter, thanks so much for being with us, Scott. Great Thank having you. you in the studio. <laughs> it really you. is. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. That includes you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.